Welcome to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. This is your host, Jazz Bear, and this is part three of the interview with Dr. Kim and Todd Saxton. They're an award-winning professors at the Indiana's University Kelly School of Business, as well as co-authors of The Titanic Effect, the book that is a practical guide to help startup founders as well as their investors and supporters successfully navigate the icebergs that so often sink startups in the ideation and early stages of development. Um, they'll tap into decades of academic and professional experience in business, strategy, entrepreneurship, marketing, market research, and venture-funded startups to help navigate the deadbergs that so often sink early stage startups. In this episode, we are going to talk about what are the biggest icebergs in the MVP stage, the minimum viable product stage, and the launch and growth stage, and finally, the scaling stage. So let's welcome Todd and Kim. Welcome back, Dr. Kim and Todd. So this is part three of the episode. And in part one and two, we covered, I'll just briefly touch on it and then you can expand on it. We covered risk versus uncertainty and at the stage, uh, different stages of startup. And also uh, the biggest icebergs were the second part uh, at the pre-revenue stage. And this episode, we're going to talk about, one of the topics we're going to talk about is the um, biggest icebergs at the MVP stage. So yeah, all yours. All right. Sounds good. So you know, share with them about the stages and what sure, happens. Sure, yeah. So, okay. yeah. So uh, you know, as we, we talked about in prior podcasts, the, the pre-revenue, kind of the ideation stage is a lot of fun, a lot of blue sky, a lot of thinking, a lot of testing and experimenting. When you get to the, the next stage, the MVP, you're actually having early customers and you're really starting to hopefully build a platform that, that you can get some traction with. Uh, after that, as you get that traction, you start growing more customers and you start really building a business and a team around it. And then finally, hopefully you get to that kind of scalable product that you can sell to not just tens or dozens of people, but hundreds, or uh, if it's a business to business, or if it's consumers, thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even. Uh, so today, we thought we'd focus a little bit more on that, that second stage. So past ideation, but getting into the minimally viable product, when you actually have kind of the, the least bit of functionality that someone will pay money for. If you're still giving it away, you haven't really hit technically uh, what an MVP is supposed to do. Uh, the MVP also really uh, allows you the opportunity to get real feedback from real customers who are actually trying to use your product to accomplish something and, and in all likelihood breaking it. And that's part of the, the learning process. Yeah, so it's really key at the MVP that you have something that people can really uh, touch and look at and play with and see how it works for them and give you some feedback on what the benefits are and all of those kinds of things. I mean, this is really an experimental stage. Um, and I think sometimes people get to the place where they have a product or service and they put it in the marketplace and they're like, yay, there it goes. And really, this is where you had hypotheses and you had to make choices and you have some alternative hypotheses and you really need to be asking yourself, have I got it right yet? And looking for indicators that you've gotten it right you're probably going to do some pivoting. So being able to understand, you know, is this the right kind of pivot? Is, is this a business to consumer, a B2C business? Is it really a business to business? So the model can change, the offering can change, who your target segment is can change, and you need to be listening to figure out if it should, instead of just being random. It's about being, I suppose it's about being more, more flexible in terms of, you know, if, if you've launched it and there's something missing, how quickly can you add that or apply that and then make it available? So you have to have that degree of flexibility, I suppose. Yes. You should have that degree of flexibility. I can give you one example where we had a service that would have an annual, it's an educational service where we thought people would enroll in the fall. We kind of quickly realized, wait a minute, they don't have to enroll in the fall. They could enroll in any quarter. And so... We, as we were getting really the first fall class came about, we had three or four people who said, oh, I, I want to wait till winter. Can I do that? And at first we were like, no, it's, it's a fall only thing. And then we thought, <laughs> well, wait a minute, uh, why not? <laughs> you know, so you've got to sort of understand where your customer is at and what's important to them and make some 
flexible changes as you are moving forward? I think uh, this is probably the riskiest in terms of uh, building or accumulating these hidden debts, particularly in the the technical uh, part of things. So the uh, the technical C as well as the marketing C, uh, because some entrepreneurs have a tendency to kind of fall into what we talked about before as kind of the pinball entrepreneur that every time they get feedback, they move in a new direction. And you have to recognize that, that the MVP, again, you are now starting to put a flag in the ground in terms of having that product market fit and building a brand uh, and communicating something to the marketplace about what you are and what problem you're trying to solve. So at this point, while you are experimenting, you need to be very sensitive to the fact that, you know, every time you change your message or, or every time you change or tweak the product or the target uh, market that you're going after, you have the potential to create icebergs of confusion uh, in the marketplace. And you need to be sensitive to that and systematic and strategic in your experiments, not random. Yeah. The other um, thing is trying to understand it, probably people are not going to behave the way that you want. Probably it's not going to be as wildly successful as you hope. So trying to understand why not is really important. Is it the offering? Is it the messaging? Is it the price? Or is it just too new and they don't know about it? And trying to eliminate reasons for lack of success is also really important. How much would you say is a good sample? This may be a bit more specific and might be different for different products and different services. How much of, in terms of numbers, how much would you say 50 people, 100 people, 20 people would be enough to say, okay, maybe I need to change this and add this to my product or my service or my, the way I do the business? I mean, obviously, when, it's, when you're new, sometimes one or two people say it and you make a quick change, not realizing you should wait for a certain amount of time. How much would you say in your opinion, it's, it's the right amount of people going, okay, perhaps we need to change it. Every time something happens on Facebook, everybody goes, I hate the new layout. <laughs> and next thing you know, I don't want to go back after a month. So that happens quite a lot. So how, what would you say it is, especially in the early stages or MVP stage? I don't think there's a number. I mean, if you were like attacking millions of, you know, if I was Uber, for example, I would need a pretty large sample of people to tell me I had a problem before I'd want to make a change. I think it's really about thinking through what are the possible, what, what am I willing to change? What do I think I should change? And being open to listening for that kind of feedback. So if it's, if it's one or two people who have very specific preferences and are going to be hard to please anyway, you know, you have to be able to discount that. But at the same time, if you're seeing some consistent patterns, like in that particular case, we saw a number of people were delaying. Um, well, then you, you know, have to ask yourself, well, I, you know, I, that represents a reasonable percent of my business, then maybe I should do that. So I, I think it also makes a huge difference, and we alluded a little to this, whether it's business to business or business to consumer. For a B2B uh, kind of venture, there is what uh, we refer to in, in our circles, kind of a rule of five, that once you have five business customers using your platform, your service, your product, whatever it is, you start to see whether there are patterns across them or whether all of them tend to be using it or each of them tends to be using it for something a little bit different. There's a, a health IT venture that we, we both helped get going. And uh, initially, it was an integrated communication platform that you could do voice, you could do text, you could do uh, exchanging documents, all HIPAA secure and, and compliant. But across the first four to five hospital systems that we were working with, each of them bought it for a different reason. One needed secure texting. One really liked the, the searchable uh, kind of scheduling component. So they were able to find who was on call and, and then reach out to them. Uh, and no one was actually buying the whole integrated package, but that's how we were initially selling it. That was our business model. So the price was off-putting to a customer that was only buying for one component. So we're really struggling to move from those first three to five users and get growth in the market. So we had to go back and fundamentally change the technology piece, but then how we package that to the marketplace to allow them to pick any one of four modules as kind of the starting point and then scale from that. Uh, so that's common parlance is, is a land and expand model where you go in with a specific offering and then expand the usage and the value proposition, but also the revenue you're getting from, from that customer over time. Uh, so 
that that is is an example of a pivot that ended up uh, being very important to allow the company to get beyond those first uh, five customers. And we only came to realize that because of having a number of users, not just one or two, uh, that were again using it or, or adopting it for different reasons. So about two weeks ago, I got a call and. I should have first explained for those who don't know, um, in the U.S., any kind of healthcare information has to be what we call HIPAA compliant, meaning that the patient's privacy is protected, that no one else can hear about your health information but you. So that is a kind of a big backdrop to what we see in some of the technology is being able to have that. You can imagine if people are just texting, uh, you know, patient Jane Doe had a heart attack, right? <laughs> that would be really bad. It needs to be somehow secure that Jane Doe's identity is protected. There are far more protections in Europe uh, for people's identity than there are in the U.S., but healthcare information is one place where we are pretty stringent. But uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I had done a Kickstarter maybe way back in the summer, and a couple weeks ago, the um, founder of the Kickstarter emailed me and said, hey, would you mind jumping on a Google Hangout with me? And um, I'm like, sure, why not? I mean, I, I do market research. I think market research is really good. And come to find out that um, her issue that she was sorting through is that she designed her product for people who live in apartments and that they are solar um, energy products. And so the idea was that you think the only people who can um, leverage solar energy are people who put rooftop solar panels on. And so she wanted to do something to let people who don't have a rooftop um, actually be able to use the solar energy. And she discovered, like me, that people who owned houses were buying her products, which really confused her because she thought that she was creating solar products for apartments, right? So completely different use case. And so she wanted to talk to find out, like, why did you buy this? Because I didn't think you would be a good target. And it turned out a, quite a number of her backers, the project made it, did really well, were actually from houses. And so she was trying to understand and you know, so my point to her is, well, I have a lot of windows. And so this was something that goes in the window that was kind of artistic, but that would also charge uh, a cell phone. So it's like, I have a bunch of windows. Why wouldn't I use my window to charge a cell phone? It's not just people in apartments who want to do things like that. I have a lot more windows than the average apartment. <laughs> so just even sometimes early on, just asking people, you know, why did you do that? I had another instance where I got an email from a company right after I'd made an online purchase and they said, again, can we talk to you? So I called them up and it turned out that I was the first buyer of the product and I had bought it 15 minutes after it was put on the store and then I wow. ordered it completely wrong. <laughs> and so they thought I didn't understand what the product was. So why did I buy it if I didn't understand? <laughs> and their thing was that they had a handwritten card that could take 1200 characters and I had used 150 because that's normal, right? On a gift card. Yeah. <laughs> so instead, I went back and rewrote my gift card. So it took the 1,200 characters that I was allowed, but I didn't buy it for that. And they thought that that was the most interesting thing. I just wanted a gift card, you know? So right. reaching out, whether it's one or two, clearly they had mismessaged that because I didn't get it. Right. Interesting. So it's just, it's almost like, um, it's almost like it's not what you think. It's what the customer is using for. It could be completely different or, or a different reason for it. Yeah. Okay, got it. That's, that's very interesting. And, and try not to make assumptions. The, the other way, so I talked a little bit about the B2B side, trying to get to that you know, rule of five, if you can. And, and as Kim suggested, I, I don't think it's necessarily a number, but one way that we think about it, and I, I bring our book uh, as an example, our book, The Titanic Effect. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in there. That it was important to us that it wasn't just friends and family. So getting beyond kind of one degree of separation with a B2C kind of thing, you can probably, you know, twist your, your friends, families, uh, neighbors' arms to get them to, to at least try something, even if they're not a paying a lot for it. But when you get that first person that's at least two or even three degrees of separation away from you, a that stranger. heard about it, yeah, a stranger that heard about it from somebody else or, you know, saw it online or listened to a podcast and, and picked it up following that. Uh, and, and then not only did they purchase it or consume it in one way or another, but they follow up and are like, hey, that was really cool, you know, really enjoyed it. Or, you know, you get positive feedback. One, that's very validating that, that what you've done uh, is something of value. But two, 
if you're going to move from ideation to an MVP and then be able to get to that next stage of growth, you've got to move from your own backyard. Uh, in business to business, that might be selling outside of your immediate uh, area, your city or whatever, and getting outside the city, getting outside the state here or, or into a new country, for example, uh, at some stage. But at the consumer level, it's, it's kind of, again, moving beyond your immediate circle of supporters to a broader kind of uh, a category of folks that, that, again, are strangers that you don't know. And that's a, that's a huge step, uh, but necessary. I know you touched upon a few, few of them, but what, what, what are the, some of the common mistakes you know, founders make at this level uh, that you see again and again? And also in terms of what's the most important aspect of it to manage? Yeah, so one of the big mistakes that I think people forget about at the MVP stage, because hopefully there are different ways to create an MVP. So one way to create an MVP is how much can I afford? What's the fastest thing I can do? And let me just get something out. And it's not going to be right anyway. So rushing it is the best thing I can do. A different way to do an MVP is to think about ultimately where do you want the product to be and then pull back features till you get to what is the the minimum that people will do. And so when people just rush something out, they create a lot of technical debt because they haven't really thought through where it's going to go in the future and the future path. They've already pigeonholed the future by where they got. So if you can have the discipline to really think through the first three to five years, where do you want to end up and then dial back? Like and take this communication platform. I mean, it could have just started out as secure texting. It would have been a lot cheaper, but ultimately the best value to the organization is when it has the four modules together. So that MVP ended up having maybe two or three of the modules and now has six or eight because it knew where it wanted to go and now even has patient-facing communications with it. So, but if you just started with a secure texting, you'd have a hard time bolting on the other parts. So it's really critical as the biggest technical iceberg is to really think through how you got to the MVP of knowing ultimately where you end up and dialing back versus just rushing forward. And that plays out in marketing too, because whenever you're offering something new to the market, you are going to be changing behavior. A shocking amount of products at the grocery store are bought. Like 80% of the, of the products in the grocery store, people are brand loyal to. They have an existing behavioral pattern. They're used to doing it. So when you go to offer something new, you're going to change their behavior. So if your MVP doesn't offer enough value to be worth changing my behavior, then I'm not going to do it. And if you take an MVP that just gets rushed out and doesn't have enough functionality, it'll die simply because there isn't enough to make it interesting for people to buy. Right. I'll talk a little bit about the, the human sea or ocean and, and some of the things we see there. And I think this is kind of, we talked about this before, but a lot of entrepreneurs get kind of sucked into that. You're not a real entrepreneur if you're not raising money and trying to grow dramatically. And this is kind of the last opportunity to make that strategic choice that, you know, I am perfectly happy having a very small team, not raising money externally and keeping a roof uh, over my head and, and family and the lights on and working with a small number of customers. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs who I would view as extremely successful who make that choice instead of kind of rushing. But at this stage is the first stage when you might be moving beyond kind of self-funding and starting to think about at least moving to some outside investing. Maybe that's friends and family. Maybe that's even an external investor. And when you take that step of bringing in someone else's money, you're incurring a, a very big debt, some hidden, some not, in terms of the expectations of how fast you're going to grow. Uh, so I would say, you know, enjoy the, the pre-revenue, which we talked about last time, and the MVP stage, and don't feel that you have to rush to take on that X outside funding and start hiring employees and start growing rapidly. Take your time to really get those first five customers or, again, if it's a consumer kind of a business to, to start building those connections to your second and, and third degrees of separation uh, so that once you have that input, you'll have a much better sense of, do I need to raise money, first of all, and do I want to? But then if so, how am I going to spend that money? Where am I going to get 
uh, growth, et cetera. And if you go out too early, and, and this happens everywhere in the world that, that we've seen, that we've explored, entrepreneurs tend to go into their own backyard to, to initially raise money. And if you do that too early before you have some things nailed down in terms of value proposition and business model, the investors will not either take you seriously or, or at best they'll just say no. And you may have then burned that bridge. Now, a lot of investors will tell you it's never too early to come talk to us. But if you go and talk to them and pitch it as if you're raising money, as opposed to pitch it to say, hey, in nine to 18 months, I'm probably going to be in fundraising mode. Here's what we're doing today. Here's what we're experimenting with. I really am not ready to take on outside funding. But what would you like to see if I come back to you in a year? What would be of interest to you? Or, or should I, I even bother? That's a kind of feedback you can get from investors at this stage and is a much more sensible way to approach fundraising in these, these very early phases of, of the development of the venture. That, that kind of brings me on nicely on, you know, on, the, on the kind of next part of it, you know, um, the launch and the growth stage. Now, how do you make sure, now you have this product, you have the first five customers and, you know, you, how do you make sure that launch goes the way you want it and, and you're kind of ready for what's about to come for you? Um, how can you make sure that happens? And then from there on, how do you then make the next stage of, of growth? When do you know it's, it's ready to now, ready to take the next stage? Well, it's interesting. There's lots of different models of that, but I'll share uh, last week, we were part of an angel consortium uh, and we had all the portfolio companies came in and did a little, here's where we are. So these are companies that had gotten some money and two kind of stuck out in my mind in that they are growing, but they're not growing maybe as fast as some of the others. And it's because they're in that replicable product stage where they're just trying to get it all right. If you get it all right, and then you get money, you can really fuel your growth. But if you don't know what you're doing and you get money, you just waste it. And there's some analysis that's been done in the venture uh, capital community that shows there's um, an inverse relationship between success and the amount of money that you got. Because <laughs> right? when you get a lot of money, you know, you get kind of stupid. <laughs> and so these two companies both spent the last year getting cash flow positive, meaning that you're making more money than you're spending. So that means really nailing down those things that we're talking about. Who are the best customers? Why? How well do we know what they're doing with our product? Client success managers, managing the relationship with the customer, really deeply understanding how you're bringing value to them. That causes them to re-up. That causes them to upgrade. Now you've already sold them. So you reduce your acquisition cost of a customer with the higher throughput. I mean, one said, we basically went through our database and we saw that we had a bunch of customers that were uh, spending $5,000 a year with us. That really wasn't enough for us to make money. So we got rid of them. We brought our average customer size to 25,000, right? So they're just aligning all the pieces of the puzzle. It's about getting all the pieces of the puzzle because to move from replicable to scaling, your biggest challenge is a scalable sales process acquiring customers at a low cost. I mean, it's normal that early on, every customer costs you a lot because you don't really know what you're doing and you're having to do a lot of experimenting and you're probably getting a lot of bad targets. But to really scale the company, you have to have that replicable sales process. So one of them was talking about how they identified uh, where, uh, we often, we talk about this in the book, which is you don't have to sell to every single customer individually. Somebody has access to groups of your customers, channel partners. Who are those channel partners? How do you get them to help sell for you? So that's like a big thing to do because if you have to hunt down every one of those strangers separately and sell everyone separately, talking about a lot of time, a lot of money. Um, So you've got to figure out how to leverage some channel partners to get you moving forward. I would say also the mindset at this stage shifting towards something that is replicable uh, is really a very different mindset than the experimentative kind of developmental mindset that works early on. Uh, So when you're pre-revenue and and moving toward the MVP, often the founder is the one who is selling, right? Who is out talking to the customers, et cetera. And you're trying a lot of different things and, and experimenting with what works and hopefully doing that strategically. 
But once you are in the phase where you're trying to start scaling and move from launch to, to early growth, that you need to have a different mindset of we need to be able to replicate that. And that means replicate the product itself, right? So that at the 10th product and the 100th product and the 1,000th product looks pretty much the same and performs well and isn't going to break, whatever that product or software might be. But also the sales process, as Kim was talking about at this point, typically transitions to someone who is a salesperson and, and away from the founder, uh, at least in part. And, and uh, having that scalable sales process of knowing what's our customer acquisition cost, or CAC, how much money as well as time does it take to land a customer? And then what's the payback from that customer? Those are things that you should be starting to build some knowledge about. Those are things that investors are going to ask about. But that replicable process is, again, a very different mindset, but also a really difficult uh, kind of pivot. And it gets a little bit further into the scaling side, but uh, a good salesperson is not necessarily a good sales manager. So getting that person who's able to sell your product a lot and then hiring the next two or three salespeople and having that person manage them or train them may be beyond their skill set. They may be great at selling one-on-one or one-to-many, but training someone else to sell or kind of developing a playbook for others to follow might, might be a real challenge for them. So uh, getting the right people in, in the right functions that are able to move from, again, that experimentative mindset to, uh, to scaling is, is really important. Yeah, we call that the inappropriate talent iceberg, that finding that right set of people at this stage that can move you forward. And sometimes it means a transition of your sales team, your marketing team, even maybe your operational team as you move from an MVP to the next stage, which is often very hard to do. But related to that, on the technical side, is um, an iceberg we call foggy waters, which means that even though you have an MVP and it's working and you kind of know what to replicate, to really scale, you have to continue to evolve the product. If I, am, I suspect you're familiar with a product called Nespresso. So, yes. yes. Yeah. So they, in 30 years, they have offered 31 different products to the marketplace, right? So they have really evolved, and particularly in the first three years, when they were just trying to experiment and find the best one, I mean, they came out with three or four different versions until they kind of got to the right one. So you have to know that whatever product you have now is not going to be the product that you're going to have in three to five years. It's going to have to go through a lot of iteration. One of the other um, companies we listened to last week is an interesting company. They have an alert that goes on an endotracheal tube in pediatric patients to tell you when the tube comes out of place, right? So if a right. child has a, a breathing tube and it gets out of place, I mean, they're likely to die more quickly than an right. adult. And they have an acquisition offer, but this past year, the acquirer gave them $7 million to retool the product for mass production, right? So when what you could do to give small scale manufacturing and what you have to do to do mass scale manufacturing, the product itself often has to change. And it's little things like, you know, the toggle switches you use and the circuit board laminates and, and things that, you know, as a startup, you don't really, you don't have that automated manufacturing mentality and you don't know anything about it. And so you, you don't even realize what the product evolution has to look like in order to create a million pieces rather than a thousand pieces. So there's a lot that has to be done in that technical side of really mapping a plan. Um, and if it's software, they call it a backlog. Um, when we built our house, it was called a punch list. Right? <laughs> Things that aren't working perfectly that need to work perfectly for this to move forward. Yeah. And keeping that sort of longer term view of your product and what it can do is really critical and hard. How do you kind of, uh, kind of come to the, the point where you think, okay, now my product's more stable. It's, you know, we're getting customers and, you know, what's that kind of look like for, let's say, you know, a software company? What does that look like? I mean, you're always going to have people that are not going to like it. There's people that are going to like it. Well, but when do you know that this is it? I mean, we are on the right track. And, and I guess the same question applies to what if a startup is a really good idea and they have a good MVP? They may not be a good product in the long run, but right now they have good enough product and they're getting funding because you hear these stories 
And when do you know it's the right time to take funding and not the right time? And also, who is the right, you know, who should I take from? Should I go to a bank? Should I go, you know, where should I take the money? So the, the first part of the question, when, when do you think it's, it's okay now, it's good enough, now we can add more features, now we can, we can be a bit more stable? Yeah, so I think the sales progress is a good indicator right. for that, right? Like if you're selling quickly and people are really appreciating it, that tells you that you've, you've got product market fit. Right. And so once you've got product market fit, then you can start to think about market evolution, product evolution. How do we help this market grow? How do we do more things? You know, you can look at some of the, the Ubers and the Lyfts and what have you. I mean, they started out with ride sharing and now, you know, they have a lot of other things that they're offering, scooters, bikes, you know, but you got to get the ride sharing piece sort of mostly right in order to know that, that there's something there that people are willing to share and have not full ownership, but partial ownership of things. Uh, so, you know, that's that piece. And then... Who do you get money from is really a complex. I mean, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about who you get money, money from and how much money do you get. You know, anything that is going to be a software product or even any kind of a product needs, and a, particularly a healthcare product, they need more money faster. I mean, you can't, even the simplest software product, honestly, often causes people to take money because... It's 150, 200, 300, 400,000 to get even a halfway decent MVP sometimes. And most of us don't have that kind of spare cash laying around like, hey, I'd like to go build a piece of software. Here's, you know, half a million dollars. Let's go do it. Right. And so you're going to end up taking people on sometimes earlier um, than you want. So you should be looking for an investor who knows your market. Right. You, You want someone who has made these kind of deals in the past here locally in Indianapolis, uh, we have a lot of expertise in what they call SaaS, software as a service, so B2B SaaS. And so we have a studio, a venture studio. So they are part incubator, part funder. They have a lot of different arrangements. If you come into the incubator, you have shared services across them, but they only talk to B2B SaaS companies because that's what they know how to scale. And so if you're in this town and you're a startup and you're a B2B SaaS and they haven't funded you, that's a problem for you, right? Because they fund all the best ones <laughs> and you have a ready-made place to go. You know, if you're in pharmaceuticals, you know, you're going to have to go to one of the two coasts here to find backing for pharmaceuticals because we just don't have that kind of money here. Um, so you have to really try and match what you want to accomplish with a investors who know your business. Yeah, I probably should kind of step back and map, at least in the U.S., what is typical, and I'll I'll use U.S. dollars, which hopefully your audience can easily translate. So if you think about that pre-revenue, basically your expenses are kind of getting an operating agreement, putting up a website, and and typically that would be done through self-funding, and maybe ten or $20,000, maybe up to as much as $50,000 to kind of cover all your bases uh, as you move toward the MVP. At the, the minimally viable product stage, you might be looking then at, at more like 25,000 to 50,000 or more to build something that is functional, even if it is minimally viable. And that might exceed your personal wealth, but it might be that you're able to bring in kind of friends and family at that stage. As you start moving toward the launch and early growth and bringing in more customers and starting to really build a team, you're probably going to go to more of an angel investing kind of either in set of individuals or a group. Over 80% of angel investing now is done through groups. And as Kim was suggesting, those are people that you should do some research because it's more than just getting a check. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're trying to get expertise. You're trying to get access to a broader network. You're trying to get feedback and input. And you might be able to raise 200000 to to as much as a million uh, from angel investing to really kind of nail down that stage. After that, when you're getting to your A and B round, uh, which could be three to five million or more, that's when you're probably looking to venture capital. Uh, and at that point, you really need to have nailed down almost to the point of being able to say, with this 500 or, or uh, you know, five million or, or whatever, we're going to put a certain chunk toward just hiring three salespeople and based on our models, they are going to generate 500000 in revenue each. 
and it's going to cost us $250,000 to hire them. So you're, you're down to the specific use of dollars and what it's going to realize for the venture in terms of revenue growth, profitability, and hitting the next milestone. There's way more uncertainty at the MVP and launch and early growth phase to be able to articulate those same metrics and, and those same milestones, but you still should have some ideas and some mapping, even for angel investors, of what that trajectory looks like. Awesome. Now we're coming towards the end of the podcast and um, I wanted to ask you a few questions, some few interesting questions, and this sure. is about more about you. So let's say someone, 25-year-old comes to you, says, I have this idea and I want to start one day. What advice do you give him? Well, we had that conversation this morning. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Although a little older than, uh, than your hypothetical example. But second business. Yeah, yeah, second business. He's already started uh, one and, and grown it nicely, merged with another company, but then has a new idea and that this new one is much more technologically complex. So to me, the first thing I look for, I don't really, this isn't something you ask, but my, what I was looking for is, well, what's the problem that you see? Why are you passionate about this? And you tend to see kind of two different categories. I hate my day job. Entrepreneurship sounds really cool. And I want to be a millionaire. And I want to be the next, you know, Facebook or whatever. And those people, I wish them luck, but I'm less interested in working with them. In this case, it was, you know, my father had cancer. We were trying to manage the health communication uh, and, and just went into his personal story, the challenges they were facing, and then how that led him to a broader realization since then of the people's needs for information in, in that particular context and how to package it, et cetera. So to me, that, that's much more compelling, came from personal experience and actually mirrored some of my and, and our experiences man, managing the health of, of my parents particularly. So, you know, that there's not only the kind of passion and grounding from this individual, but also a common experience and problem that resonates with me. And, and those are, are two really big pieces early on that I look for and also encourage in, in aspiring entrepreneurs is to be very kind of clear about that and, and what part of it they're passionate about and to try and make sure they stay true to that as they navigate all of these other uncertainties. But you kind of hit on something and I want to make sure it doesn't get lost, which is that sometimes people come to us and they say, I have this product idea. What we really encourage them to do is to flip that. What's the problem you need to solve? Start with the problem. Who has this problem? How big is this problem? And that then leads to, okay, well, what kind of products could solve this problem? It also leads to what competitors does the solution already have? And so at this stage, often we start asking, what other work have you done to understand what the solutions to the problem are? I think last time Kim mentioned a similar conversation with a, a woman who was starting a catering business and we talked about competition and she's like, no, I don't think there's anybody doing this. And Kim pulled out her phone and pulled up, you know, three or four. Yeah. Uh, in this case, I said, are there similar things? Then he pulled out his phone and said, you know, he had a, a folder that had four different apps on it and said, these are the apps that are doing the closest thing that I've been able to find. And here's what each one of them does. Here's how we're different. That's a very different response in terms of preparedness and, and just doing your research and being able to refer to it uh, when prompted. Well, and yesterday I saw an interesting conversation in a group. I'm a advisor for the startup ladies and they have a private Facebook group and someone posted something about, uh, well, I've got this name for a company and I went and I looked in the state database and there's this other company that has a nearly identical name and they've had it for longer, but we do really different things. So I should be able to use this name, right? So I started asking, how are you different? Like what makes you distinctive? In this case, they're doing um, wedding videos. And so I'm like, well, a lot of people do wedding videos. So why don't you pick a name that has something to do with what makes you special as opposed to like being descriptive of what you are, right? right. Wedding videos are us is not very exciting, right? I don't know. I'm just making stuff up now, but like precious memories or, you know, something like, you know, experience you don't forget, you know, something that kind of gets to like, how do you look at this differently? Why should I pick you is probably going to be more interesting than, you know, Jane Doe's wedding photography. <laughs> right. And, and, and what do you think this, this is for both of you? I mean, who's an entrepreneur or a leader that really blows your mind? Could be from 
you know, any field, a person that really kind of blows your mind and think, you think the way they think is different from a lot of others. Who would that be for you? Well, well-known ones, uh, I think uh, Elon Musk, for example, is fascinating to me, probably a bit crazy. Uh, and, you know, many really smart entrepreneurs are. Uh, one who is, is less known, but I respect quite a bit, is a, a gentleman named Mike Hatfield. He's a serial tech entrepreneur in the telecommunications space. And he's just extremely strategic in how he approaches. He has had several hits, uh, including a, a big exit, almost $7 billion with his co-founders. Uh, and taken two companies public. So he just has this uh, series of uh, successes that, that's very impressive. Um, but also his ability to take something that's very technologically complex and break it down and make it kind of consumable uh, to others in terms of what problem that product is solving and how it specifically fits into the telecommunications ecosystem. And I, I think there are some people who are able to take complex problems, it, it, regardless of the industry itself, it could be healthcare related, it could be uh, telecommunications, it, it could be social media, but able to, to take those complex phenomena, really understand them deeply, but then break down and communicate to even relative novices what problem they're solving, how they're solving it, and why that's a, an economic opportunity. Uh, and uh, I try to adopt that in myself in terms of helping entrepreneurs uh, be able to do that themselves, right? And, and it is, to some degree, a skill that you can develop over time. I think it comes more naturally to, to some folks than others. So more of the celebrity status, I've always appreciated Richard Branson, just from how he approached business and the businesses that he's gotten in, and then just his approach to leadership and what you know, company culture looks like, I think, are really admirable. Um, more locally, we have a, a very, he's just so thoughtful in the way that he approaches new ideas. And his name is Chris Baggett. His current startup is called Cluster Truck. Um, but uh, he started out with a dry cleaning business. So he wanted to get into business. He got a dry cleaning business. This is like a, a guy who came out of real estate and marketing and he opens a dry cleaning business. And, and probably he had no business being in dry cleaning. But what was interesting about it is that he realized that promotions for dry cleaners were terribly expensive, had really low conversion rates, and there needed to be something different. So he came up with email marketing software. And that email marketing software turned into a $2.5 billion acquisition by salesforce.com and is now the salesforce.com marketing cloud. So that was one instance. Another instance he looked at blogging was like, you know, the thing with blogging is that companies need to be able to have multiple voices that blog. And so he came up with a software that allowed uh, a brand marketer to moderate leveraging the whole company to write blog posts. Brilliant, because content for blog posts is painful. So that was his second business. He sold that to Oracle. <laughs> so Salesforce and Oracle, yeah. right? But then his third business was in farming. And he has a farm and he really it, it personally thinks that um, non-GMO is important. And we can debate that, whatever. But the problem was that Nobody was producing non-GMO products because they had no access to markets. And so his theory was that the internet should democratize everything. And so he built a business to distribute farm products. And that led to his latest business called Cluster Truck, which is food delivery. But instead of like DoorDash or Grubhub or one of those where there's an existing restaurant and all it does is accumulate orders from that restaurant and somebody goes and picks them up and drives them. So now the food is 45 minutes old and doesn't taste as good. And, and the restaurant is kind of a pain. He has developed centralized kitchens. Everything's run with software. And you place your order and they can tell you exactly how many, many minutes it's going to be. And you will get, you know, made to order fresh food, exactly what you wanted with all of the recipes from those other places. Um, so it was food trucks is where he got his idea, which is how he got to cluster truck. And it's just really cool how he thinks about how could technology solve a problem that people have and then and goes and creates that. And I'm not saying necessarily that he's the person who should run that business, but his ideation about, you know, how to use technology to solve everyday problems has just been really fun to watch. 
I think also in, in other kind of arenas that, that people might not necessarily think of as technologists or entrepreneurs. Um, but if you think about people like Madonna and Dolly Parton, who were very entrepreneurial in not just creating great content, but uh, the business side and managing that and being very effective related to the, the food products area. Uh, there's a, a woman entrepreneur here, foodpreneur, I guess, uh, Martha Hoover, who's built a chain of uh, really good restaurants using mostly locally sourced food. Uh, there's also a foundation associated with it that does a lot of giving back. Uh, so it's, it's an area that she's very passionate about, uh, but has also built a, 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 a great contribution, I think, to the community on, on many fronts. Yeah, she's been nominated for a James Beard Award. That's like our, our nationally strongest, uh, you know, uh, cooks kind of thing. And being woman-founded and woman-run, she's actually changing perceptions of, of gender in the food industry. So she's pretty admirable as well. Wow. And, and who would you say is the next trillion-dollar company? Uh, so Apple's done it. Uh, yeah, we could tell you that. Uh, we'd tell you after we banked it. <laughs> well, I, I do think, and, and actually I uh, called this probably three or four years ago, but I think the move... The transition from a, a sharing uh, kind of economy, particularly when it comes to information and, and social media, is the pendulum already swinging back toward protection of privacy, protection of personal information. Uh, and, and I think that pendulum hasn't even come close to, to swinging far enough in the other direction. Uh, and the kind of ability to manage your presence uh, online, your history, and, and all of that. We made it really easy to share, not very easy to protect. Uh, I think there's a whole suite of uh, tools, techniques, and services uh, that are going to, to help uh, people over the next five to 10 years. It's interesting. Um, you think about those kind of businesses are called unicorns, right? And so unicorns is supposed to be something that never occurs. And people who are tracking this, there's something like you know, 400 unicorns, I think, in the world today, they think that number is going to top a thousand. So, I mean, honestly, they're not even an endangered species anymore. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, in terms of total number of counties, it is a small percent, but let's be honest, that's not very rare. Um, more recently, the one I've been hearing about that I think is kind of an interesting concept that they're calling a Pegasus, which is an animal that flies on its own, which means that they're cash flow positive, meaning that they don't have all the investment. And so, there's something to be said about taking a small amount of money and then figuring it out how to run your business and scale it without needing any more. That is pretty cool. So I like the concept and that's what I would be pushing people to do is not take so much money and figure out um, how can you make the most with the least. Did you say 400 in just US or 400 globally? I think it's 400 globally. Yeah. 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 But I think they think it's going to head to a thousand. I mean, when you start to see some startups from you know the emerging markets come through, their marketplaces are so large that as they begin to scale, I mean, the growth potential is just astronomical as compared to what you can do in the U.S. So I, I would say one other element to that is it's increasingly less likely that it's going to come out of the United States. I, I think uh, other markets, because of some of the reasons Kim was just mentioning, but uh, uh, that, that doesn't mean there won't continue to be some from the United States, but I think that the majority in all likelihood uh, will, will be coming elsewhere, which is a great thing. I, I think entrepreneurship can and should be a global phenomenon. We know here in the U.S. we talk about Amazon and uh, Prime Day, which was you know back in the summer, and then Alibaba had its equivalent, and the numbers that you know were generated Alibaba in one day is <laughs> like ten years of Amazon. You know, so the scale is outside the U.S., and so I think we're going to see more U.S. companies trying to understand how to get into overseas markets if they haven't already, and we're going to see more overseas startups trying to come into the U.S. Um, to access the. Yeah, the money that's that. here. Yeah. And then the good place will be to, to end it will be um, from, from both of you. It's what's your prediction for 2020 for the world of business? And I know people, especially uh, the ones are thinking about going into entrepreneurship will always say it's not a good time. It's not a good economy. Well, that's always been the case. Right. So what's your prediction for 2020 and probably beyond? 
there's like so many things on a macro level that are going to be hard to predict, right? We've seen this populist move. We've seen, you know, across Europe, this idea of protecting your borders more, becoming more insular to the extent that that happens. And we continue with the tariff situations that we're having and cross tariffs. A lot of things are pointing to a recession coming and that much more negative economic conditions. Um, Personally, we're preparing for that. We're trying to keep ourselves flexible in our investment portfolio so that we're protected in whichever direction it goes. That if there's upside, we have a way to take advantage of the upside, but that since at least in the US, we've had some pretty good upside that we don't just get it washed away. I mean, in 2007, we were in Australia for six months. And so all that was happening back home and we didn't really have any flexibility. Um, So we're preparing for either direction, but I think we're a little worried that the direction is going to be more negative in 2020 and 2021. And all of that, I think, will create a lot of entrepreneurial opportunity. Some of the best ventures, both locally but also nationally, came out of uh, that that downturn, you know, 10 to 12 years ago. Uh, and I think we're seeing, uh, I, I think there's going to be a lot of potential for uh, for startup activity and pockets of, of entrepreneurial success uh, in the event of a downturn, which I think is increasingly likely. Well, thank you so much for coming on and giving us so much wisdom and knowledge. And I really enjoyed it. We should end on a more upbeat note than yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, let's do that then. It's all stages yours. What would you like to say? So I want to share that we are really excited. You know, we've been angel investors for the last 10 years and angel investing is a slow payoff. And last week we got a check for the first woman owned business that we invested in. And it had a very healthy return in about a four-year period of time. So we were super excited about that. Go, ladies. Awesome. So, so I'm, I'll, I'll come and visit you soon then. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Love to have you. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. I hope you got some great value and insights from this episode. And if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur, then I have some great free resources for you. If you visit www.jazbearaurora.com, that's www.jazbearaurora.com, and drop me a line, I will send you an ebook and also a one-hour masterclass. And also, um, go and take the Escape the 9 to 5 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.